Book One, Chapter Six, Part One of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was high noon, and the rays of the sun that hung poised directly overhead in an intolerable white glory fell straight as plummets upon the roofs and streets of Guadalajara. The adobe walls and sparse brick sidewalks of the drowsing town radiated the heat in an oily, quivering shimmer. The leaves of the eucalyptus trees around the plaza drooped motionless, limp and relaxed under the scorching, searching blaze. The shadows of these trees had shrunk to their smallest circumference, contracting close about the trunks. The shade had dwindled to the breadth of a mere line. The sun was everywhere. The heat exhaling from brick and plaster and metal met the heat that steadily descended blanket-wise and smothering from the pale, scorched sky. Only the lizards, they lived in chinks of the crumbling adobe and in interstices of the sidewalk, remained without, motionless, as if stuffed, their eyes closed to mere slits, basking, stupefied with heat. At long intervals the prolonged drone of an insect developed out of the silence, vibrated a moment in a soothing, somnolent, long note, then trailed slowly into the quiet again. Somewhere in the interior of one of the doby houses a guitar snored and hummed sleepily. On the roof of the hotel a group of pigeons cooed incessantly with subdued liquid murmurs, very plaintive. A cat, perfectly white, with a pink nose and thin pink lips, dozed complacently on a rail fence, full in the sun. In a corner of the plaza three hens wallowed in the baking hot dust, their wings fluttering, clucking comfortably. And this was all. A Sunday repose prevailed the whole moribund town, peaceful, profound. A certain pleasing numbness, a sense of grateful enervation exhaled from the scorching plaster. There was no movement, no sound of human business. The faint hum of the insect, the intermittent murmur of the guitar, the mellow complainings of the pigeons, the prolonged purr of the white cat, the contented clucking of the hens, all these noises mingled together to form a faint, drowsy burden, prolonged, stupefying suggestive of an infinite quiet, of a calm, complacent life, centuries old, lapsing gradually to its end under the gorgeous loneliness of a cloudless, pale blue sky, and the steady fire of an interminable sun. In Solatari's Spanish-Mexican restaurant, Vanamee and Presley sat opposite each other at one of the tables near the door, a bottle of white wine, tortillas, and an earthen pot of frijoles between them. They were the sole occupants of the place. It was the day that Annixter had chosen for his barn dance, and in consequence Quien Sabe was in fate, and work suspended. Presley and Vanamee had arranged to spend the day in each other's company, lunching at Solotari's and taking a long tramp in the afternoon. For the moment they sat back in their chairs, their meal all but finished. Solitari brought black coffee and a small carafe of mescal, and, retiring to a corner of the room, went to sleep. All through the meal Presley had been wondering over a certain change he observed in his friend. He looked at him again. Vanamee's lean, spare face was of an olive pallor. 
His long black hair, such as one sees in the saints and evangelists of the pre-Raphaelite artists, hung over his ears. Presley again remarked his pointed beard, black and fine, growing from the hollow cheeks. He looked at his face, a face like that of a young seer, like a half-inspired shepherd of the Hebraic legends, a dweller in the wilderness, gifted with strange powers. He was dressed as when Presley had first met him, herding his sheep in brown canvas overalls, thrust into top boots, gray flannel shirt open at the throat, showing the breast ruddy with tan, the waist encircled with a cartridge belt, empty of cartridges. But now, as Presley took more careful note of him, he was surprised to observe a certain new look in Vanamy's deep-set eyes. He remembered now that all through the morning Vanamy had been singularly reserved. He was continually drifting into reveries, abstracted, distrait. Indubitably, something of moment had happened. At length Vanamy spoke. Leaning back in his chair, his thumbs in his belt, his bearded chin upon his breast, his voice was the even monotone of one speaking in his sleep. He told Presley in a few words what had happened during the first night he had spent in the garden of the old mission. Of the answer, half fancied, half real, that had come to him. To no other person but you would I speak of this, he said. But you, I think, will understand. Will be sympathetic, at least, and I feel the need of unburdening myself of it to someone. At first I would not trust my own senses. I was sure I had deceived myself, but on the second night it happened again. Then I was afraid, or, or no, 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 not afraid, but uh, disturbed. Oh, uh, shaken to my very heart's core. I resolved to go no further in the matter, never again to put it to test. For a long time I stayed away from the mission, occupying myself with my work, keeping it out of my mind, but the temptation was too strong. One night I found myself there again, under the black shadow of the pear trees, calling for Angele, summoning her from out the dark, from out the night. This time the answer was prompt, unmistakable. I cannot explain to you what it was, nor how it came to me, for there was no sound. I saw absolutely nothing but the empty night. There was no moon, but somewhere off there, over the little valley, far off, the darkness was troubled. That me that went out upon my thought, out from the mission garden, out over the valley, calling for her, searching for her, found, I don't know what, but found a resting place, a companion. Three times since I have gone to the mission garden at night. Last night was the third time. He paused, his eyes shining with excitement. Presley leaned forward toward him, motionless with intense absorption. Well, and, and last night, he prompted, Vanamy stirred in his seat, his glance fell. He drummed an instant upon the table. Last night, he answered, there was, there was a change. The answer was, he drew a deep breath, nearer. Are you sure? 
The other smiled with absolute certainty. It was not that I found the answer sooner, easier. I could not be mistaken. No, that which has troubled the darkness, that which has entered into the empty night, is coming nearer to me. Physically nearer, actually nearer. His voice sank again. His face, like the face of younger prophets, the seers, took on a half-inspired uh, expression. He looked vaguely before him with unseeing eyes. Suppose, he murmured, suppose I stand there under the pear trees at night and call her again and again, and each time the answer comes nearer and nearer, and I wait uh, until at last one night, the supreme night of all. She, she... Suddenly the tension broke. With a sharp cry and a violent, uncertain gesture of the hand, Vanamee came to himself. Oh, he exclaimed, what is it? Do I dare? What does it mean? There are times when it appalls me, and there are times when it thrills me with a sweetness and a happiness that I have not known since she died. The bigness of it. How can I explain it to you? This that happens when I call to her across the night that faint, far-off, unseen tremble in the darkness, that intangible, scarcely perceptible stir, something neither heard nor seen, appealing to a sixth sense only. Listen, it, it, it is something like this. On Quien Sabe, all last week, we have been seeding the earth. The grain is there now under the earth, buried in the dark, in the black stillness, under the clods, can you imagine the first, the very first little quiver of life that the grain of wheat must feel after it is sown, when it answers to the call of the sun, down there in the dark of the earth, blind, deaf, the very first stir from the inert long, long before any physical change has occurred, long before the microscope could discover the slightest change, when the shell first tightens with the first faint premonition of life, well, it is something as elusive as that. He paused again, dreaming, lost in a reverie. Then, just above a whisper, murmured, That which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And she, Angele, died. You could not have been mistaken, said Presley. You were sure that there was something. Imagination can do so much, and the influence of the surroundings was strong. How impossible it would be that anything should happen. And you say you heard nothing, saw nothing. I believe, answered Venemy, in a sixth sense, or rather a, a whole system of other unnamed senses beyond the reach of our understanding. People who live much alone and close to nature experience the sensation of it. Perhaps it is something fundamental that we share with plants and animals, the same thing that sent the birds south long before the first colds, the same thing that makes the grain of wheat struggle up to meet the sun. And this sense never deceives. You may see wrong, hear wrong, but once touch this sixth sense, and it acts with absolute fidelity. You are certain. No, I hear nothing in the mission garden. I see nothing. Nothing touches me. 
But I am certain for all that. Presley hesitated for a moment, then he asked, Shall you go back to the garden again, make the test again? I don't know. Strange enough, commented Presley, wondering. Vanamee sank back in his chair, his eyes growing vacant again. Strange enough, he murmured. There was a long silence. Neither spoke nor moved. There, in that moribund ancient town, wrapped in its siesta, flagellated with heat, deserted, ignored, baking in a noonday silence, these two strange men, the one a poet by nature, the other by training, both out of tune with their world, dreamers, introspective, morbid, lost and unfamiliar at that end-of-the-century time, searching for a sign, groping and baffled amidst the perplexing obscurity of the delusion, sat over empty wine-glasses, silent with the pervading silence that surrounded them, hearing only the cooing of doves and the drone of bees, the quiet so profound that at length they could plainly distinguish at intervals the puffing and coughing of a locomotive switching cars in the station-yard of Bonneville. It was, no doubt, this jarring sound that at length roused Presley from his lethargy. The two friends rose. Solotari, very sleepily, came forward. They paid for the luncheon, and, stepping out into the heat and glare of the streets of the town, passed on through it and took the road that led northward across a corner of Dyke's hop-fields. They were bound for the hills in the northeastern corner of Quien Sabe. It was the same walk which Presley had taken on the previous occasion when he had first met Vanamy herding the sheep. This encompassing detour around the whole countryside was a favorite pastime of his, and he was anxious that Vanamy should share his pleasure in it. But soon after leaving Guadalajara they found themselves upon the land that Dyke had bought, and upon which he was to raise his famous crop of hops. Dyke's house was close at hand, a very pleasant little cottage, painted white, with green blinds and deep porches, while near it, and yet in process of construction, were two great storehouses and a drying and curing house, where the hops were to be stored and treated. All about were evidences that the former engineer had already been hard at work. The ground had been in readiness to receive the crop, and a bewildering innumerable multitude of poles connected with a maze of wire and twine had been set out. Farther on, at a turn of the road, they came upon Dyke himself, driving a farm wagon loaded with more poles. He was in his shirt-sleeves, his massive hairy arms bare to the elbow, glistening with sweat red with heat. In his bell-like rumbling voice he was calling to his foreman and a boy at work in stringing the poles together. At sight of Presley and Vanamee he hailed them jovially, addressing them as boys, and insisting that they should get into the wagon with him and drive to the house for a glass of beer. His mother had only the day before returned from Marysville, where she had been looking up a seminary for the little tad. She would be delighted to see the two boys. Besides, Vanamee must see how the little tad had grown since he last set eyes on her. Wouldn't know her for the same little girl, and the beer had been on ice since morning. Presley and Vanamee could not well refuse. They climbed into the wagon and jolted over the uneven ground through the bare forest of hop-poles to the house. 
Inside they found Mrs. Dyke, an old lady with a very gentle face who wore a cap and a very old-fashioned gown with hoop skirts, dusting the whatnot in a corner of the parlor. The two men were presented, and the beer was had from off the ice. "'Mother,' said Dyke, as he wiped the froth from his great blonde beard, "'ain't Cedar anywheres about. I want Mr. Vanamee to see how she has grown. Smartest little tad in Tulare County, boys. Can recite the whole of Snowbound, end to end, without skipping or looking at the book. Maybe you don't believe that. Mother, ain't I right, without skipping a line, eh? Mrs. Dyke nodded to say that it was so, but explained that Sidney was in Guadalajara. In putting on her new slippers for the first time the morning before, she had found a dime in the toe of one of them, and had had the whole house by the ears ever since till she could spend it. "'Was it for licorice to make her licorice water?' inquired Dyke gravely. "'Yes,' said Mrs. Dyke. "'I made her tell me what she was going to get before she went, and it was licorice.' Dyke, though his mother protested that he was foolish and that Presley and Vanamy had no great interest in young ones, insisted upon showing the visitors Sidney's copy-books. They were monuments of laborious, elaborate neatness, the trite moralities and ready-made aphorisms of the philanthropists and publicists repeated from page to page with wearying insistence. I, too, am an American citizen, S.D., as the twig is bent, the tree is inclined. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. As for me, give me liberty or give me death. And last of all, a strange intrusion among the mild, well-worn phrases, two legends. My motto, public control of public franchises. And the P and SW is an enemy of the state. I see commented Bresley. You mean the little tad to understand the situation early. I told him he was foolish to give that to Sid to copy, said Mrs. Dyke with indulgent remonstrance. What can she understand of public franchises? Never mind, observed Dyke. She'll remember it when she grows up and when the seminary people have rubbed her up a bit, and then she'll begin to ask questions and to understand. And don't you make any mistake, mother, he went on, about the little tad not knowing who her dad's enemies are. What do you think, boys? Listen here. Precious little. I've ever told her of the railroad or how I was turned off. But the other day I was working down by the fence next to the railroad tracks, and Sid was there. She brought her doll rags down, and she was playing house behind a pile of hop poles. Well, along comes a through freight, mixed train from Missouri points and a string of empties from New Orleans. And when it had passed, what do you suppose the tad did? <laughs> she didn't know I was watching her. She goes to the fence and spits a little spit after the caboose and puts out her little head and, if you believe me, hisses at the train. <laughs> and Mother says she does that same every time she sees a train go by and never crosses the tracks that she don't spit her little spit on em. <laughs> what do you think of that? But I correct her every time, protested Mrs. Dyke seriously. When she picked up the trick of hissing, I don't, I don't know. Oh, it's not funny. 
It seemed dreadful to see a little girl who's so sweet and gentle as can be in every other way so venomous. She said the other little girls at school and the boys, too, were all the same way. Oh, dear, she sighed. Why will the general office be so unkind and unjust? Why, I couldn't be happy with all the money in the world if I thought that even one little child hated me, hated me so that it would spit and hiss at me. And it not one little child, it's all of them. So Sidney says, and I think of all the grown people who hate the road, women and men, or the whole county, the whole state, thousands and thousands of people. Don't the managers and the directors of the road ever think of that? Don't they ever think of all the hate that surrounds them everywhere, everywhere, and the good people that just grit their teeth when the name of the road is mentioned? <laughs> Why do they want to make the people hate them? No, she murmured, the tears starting to her eyes. No, I tell you, Mr. Presley, the men who own the railroad are wicked, bad-hearted men who don't care how much the poor people suffer, as long as the road makes its eighteen million a year. They don't care whether the people hate them or love them, just so long as they are afraid of them. It's not right. And God will punish them sooner or later. A little after this, the two young men took themselves away, Dyke obligingly carrying them in the wagon as far as the gate that opened into the Quien Sabe Ranch. On the way, Presley referred to what Mrs. Dyke had said and led Dyke himself to speak of the P and S.W. Well, Dyke said, it's like this, Mr. Presley. I personally haven't got the right to kick. With you wheat-growing people, I guess it's different. But hops, you see, don't count for much in the state. It's such a little business that the road don't want to bother themselves to tax it. It's the wheat-growers that the road cinches. The rates on hops are fair. I've got to admit that. I was into Bonneville a while ago to find out. It's two cents a pound, and Lord love you, that's reasonable enough to suit any man. No, he concluded, I'm on the way to make money now. The road sacking me as they did was maybe a good thing for me, after all. It came just at the right time. I had a bit of money put by, and here was the chance to go into hops for the certainty that hops would quadruple and quintuple in price inside the year. No, it was my chance, and Though they didn't mean it by a long chalk, the railroad people did me a good turn when they gave me my time, and the tad led to the seminary next fall. About a quarter of an hour after they had said good-bye to the one-time engineer, Presley and Vanamee, tramping briskly along the road that led northward through Quien Sabe, arrived at Annixter's ranch house. Once they were aware of a vast and unwanted bustle that revolved around the place. They stopped a few minutes looking on, amused and interested in what was going forward. The colossal barn was finished. Its freshly whitewashed sides glared intolerably in the sun, but its interior was as yet innocent of paint, and through the yawning vent of the sliding doors came a delicious odor of new fresh wood and shavings. A crowd of men, Annixter's farmhands, were swarming all about it. 
Some were balanced on the topmost rounds of ladders, hanging festoons of Japanese lanterns from tree to tree, and all across the front of the barn itself. Mrs. Tree, her daughter Hilma, and another woman were inside the barn, cutting into long strips bolt after bolt of red, white, and blue cambric, and directing how these strips should be draped from the ceiling and on the walls. Everywhere resounded the tapping of tack-hammers. A farm-wagon drove up, loaded to overflowing with evergreens, and with great bundles of palm-leaves, and these were immediately seized upon and affixed as supplementary decorations to the tricolored cambric upon the inside walls of the barn. Two of the larger evergreen trees were placed on either side the barn door, and their tops bent over to form an arch. In the middle of this arch it was proposed to hang a mammoth pasteboard escutcheon with gold letters spelling the word WELCOME. Piles of chairs rented from IOOF Hall in Bonneville heaped themselves in an apparently helpless entanglement on the ground, while at the far extremity of the barn a couple of carpenters clattered about the impromptu staging which was to accommodate the band. There was a strenuous gaiety in the air. Everybody was in the best of spirits. Notes of laughter continually interrupted the conversation on every hand. At one moment a group of men involved themselves in uproarious horseplay. They passed oblique jokes behind their hands to each other, grossly veiled double meanings meant for the women, and bellowed with laughter thereat, stamping on the ground. The relations between the sexes grew more intimate, the women and girls pushing the young fellows away from their sides with vigorous thrusts of their elbows. It was passed from group to group that Adela Vaca, a division superintendent's wife, had lost her garter. The daughter of the foreman of the home ranch was kissed behind the door of the dairy house. Annixter, in execrable temper, appeared from time to time, hapless, his stiff yellow hair in wild disorder. He hurried between the barn and the ranch house, carrying now a wicker demijohn, now a case of wine, now a basket of lemons and pineapples. Besides general supervision, he had elected to assume the responsibility of composing the punch. Something stiff, by jingo, a punch that would raise you right out of your boots. A regular hair-lifter. The harness-room of the barn he had set apart for himself and intimates. He had brought a long table down from the house, and upon it had set out boxes of cigars, bottles of whiskey, and of beer, and the great china bowls for the punch. It would be no fault of his, he declared, if half the number of his men friends were not uproarious before they left. His barn dance would be the talk of all Tulare County for years to come. For this one day he had resolved to put all thoughts of business out of his head. For the matter of that, things were going well enough. Osterman was back from Los Angeles with a favorable report as to his affair with Disbro and Darrell. There had been another meeting of the committee. Harran Derrick had attended, though he had taken no part in the discussion. Annixter was satisfied. The governor had consented to allow Harran to come in, if he so desired, and Harran had pledged himself to share one-sixth of the campaign expenses, providing these did not exceed a certain figure. End of Book One, Chapter Six, Part One